one's wrist. The typical Mesopotamian seal was mounted on a pin and hung on a string or necklace around one's neck. The cylinder seal hung around one's neck would, figuratively speaking, rest over the heart. The beloved wished to be to Solomon like a cylinder seal worn over his heart. She wanted to be as intimate with her lover as the seal that was worn by him. The text says, set me as a cylinder, like a cylinder seal over your heart. And even like a signet, literally the cylinder seal or seal is repeated again here to bring emphasis the translation above uses the term cylinder seal or signet simply for the sake of the poetic variation. The beloved wanted to be as safe and secure as a cylinder seal worn on the arm or around the neck, hanging down over the heart. She also wanted to be placed on his heart, placed into his emotions. Like the impression of the cylinder seal is written on a document. She wanted to be written on his heart. Like the impression of a cylinder seal. And kept secure in his love as a signet ring is worn around the arm or hand to keep it safe. On your arm or the wrist. So Solomon, the king, right, he's wearing this cylinder seal around his neck. It is invested with him the authority of the whole land. And she's saying basically like this. When this cylinder seal is floating across this area, you know where our heart is right here? It's about almost mid-mass and to the left. That when that cylinder seal is over the heart like this, what she's saying is, is, When you feel something, and when your emotions are going, you're going through something, I want you to be mindful of me. I want you to see what I feel without me having to say anything to you, maybe. I just want it to be in your heart. In marriage, you know, we find this in our marriages. the husband feel what the wife longs for even if she says nothing to him can he intuit her emotions when we were going he says you know I'm gentle and lowly of heart it's his heart to be gentle he's the ultimate gentleman his lowliness is his humility. What does that produce? This delicacy. It's a delicacy to hear. 
that there's like a sound that floats through our houses and in our homes, like a sound that we've not been able to hear maybe. Maybe we've been too loud or maybe we talked too much. Maybe we said too much. But there was like a sound, and if I could tune to the sound of heaven, this uh, male and female would be as one. We wouldn't run roughshod. She's crying out, I want what's in my heart to be what's on your heart. You know, she's coming up from the wilderness. Loving, but also leaning on the chest of the Lord. we could have this delicacy, this refining, gentle nature of God, this moment in ourselves when we were became still, all the pressures are around us and everything's trying to tell us a different story. But if we could get quiet and just listen for the sound, the sound of heaven, and you say, quiet, oh my soul my soul saying to me don't choose yourself set me into a, such a position where I lose even the consciousness of my own sin no more fault finding no more pointing a finger the pressure's on I want to point a finger at myself and guilt from the past I want to point a finger at someone into the future what are you going to do? What are we going to do? I don't know. Delicacy. You know the word. Quiet. Listen to me. And when we get quiet, there he is. Oh, delicate God. Oh, refined person. Holy Spirit. circumstances have been all around me They're trying to tell us a different story heaven is saying something else
Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, 
Jeff sent, sent me something, um, I think it was last night, or maybe it was this morning, but he, he wrote something that it just seemed real apropos for today, and especially even with Oliver's movement, I think it's just like the thing that has a beautiful display of the heart of the father to the child and the, the child to the father, and um, just the miracle work of God that he's, uh, you know, working out where we become, we come into the family of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And maybe we wouldn't have had that opportunity, but now he's made a way. Um, but Jeff had sent me this, and I, I just thought, man, this, this morning as we take off into this, I think it would be really fruitful. But he, he wrote this one phrase, and it really caught my eye. It was called, From the Manger to the Mansion. And, uh, you know, as we've been looking at Revelation 12 concerning the, the, the birthing of the man-child, that it's been interesting to me in our ascension as a ministry that there would be a location in the, in the heavens in, in a way where the man-child would be born. This, this child who is a man... And today, uh, I'm going to just do the best I can to explain how um, or and have a talk or about this relationship uh, with Jesus and how he relates to us in the way of a, of a man-child. Uh, One of the things about children is they have a lack of self-awareness. Self-awareness, they say, I think, takes place, and I'm not a psychologist, and I don't really know, but I think self-awareness takes place. It, you grow in self-awareness as you get older, and so you're able to reflect back on yourself, and I've noticed that raising our children some, that when they're little, they just kind of run around, they, you know, hit things and don't know what they're doing, and they're just sort of uh, free. They love to be watched uh, when they play. Please come watch me play. They love for someone's eyes to be looking at them while they play. And they, their awareness is not as much self as it is someone else's awareness that they're asking that awareness to look at me, look at me, look, Daddy. I hear it when they were little. I, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, Daddy. And it's, it's more so even than Mommy. They'll say, Daddy, all the time, Daddy, look at me. Look at me play. Watch what I just did. Watch what I just threw this. I just climbed a tree. I just jumped into the water. I did whatever. You know, there's a, a playfulness, and there's a, there's a complete, uh, the, the awareness of what they're looking for is that Daddy would look at them, uh, that, and then he would smile, you know, or say, be careful. You know, Mama's more like, our Mama and our family is more like, be careful. You know, Leander, he was up like, I don't know, 25 feet in a tree the other day, and uh, he climbed on the roof. yeah, he climbed on the roof, he gets on top of cars, he does all kinds of things you don't know, like, is he going to have to go to the dock, or what's he going to have to do, because he's sort of like, wants to get up and, you know, find his little place and see how high he can go, <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that in, and his granddad, I, I think in the play that we as 
children were made like this. And if, if some way that your childhood was hurt, you know, where you can only play in the reflection of a critical eye. And let's say that that eye was critiquing you constantly and, uh, and it was harsh. Um, it takes out of, of us that uh, tenderness of just being playful and having a good time. And it begins to be that we're trying to perform to get approval. And whether we realize it or not, uh, and we realize that sometimes we get to become adults that, that hurt us in a way. Not so much so that daddy wouldn't say, hey, be careful, but just the joy of a father that enjoys watching you enjoy, be enjoyed. And so the, a critical eye towards you or any of us has had to, it, it dealt with that, or an eye that just basically says, well, do what you want, I don't care. And just whatever, there's no boundary. That either one of those kind of eyes uh, takes out of us somehow like this childlike nature. And, it, and many of us, many of uh, people that I've, I've worked with and stuff, they grow up and they're doing everything they can to get this approval. Or they're just off the rails. And, uh, and it, it messes with your, your uh, person. And so when Jesus begins to, um, to work with us and come to us, what we were saying this morning is he's saying, you know, uh, I want you to let me into this place that seems very vulnerable. Uh, because if, if as a child you were treated a certain way, or let's say you had no eyes of your dad, or you had a critical eye of your dad, or you had a dad that didn't care, it can, like, mess with you when the Lord comes to you and he says, will you ask me to let me uh, bring some things into your life to be able to help you and I think so many people have been wounded in in this area and hurt deeply hurt so much so that some might be like well I wish dad never was around some have had really great dads and said man I love being with my dad you know I like to be around him and uh, but if you've dealt with this this can be extremely uh, difficult and what God is so when the word comes to us and his gentleness, and he starts to bring in some uh, processes to develop us, we can uh, resist and not even realizing that the thing that's being introduced to us, maybe by our, a spouse or even a child, or that it really is for our good because we interpret it through our hurt. And so there's been this great uh, breaking that's happening in people and, and I would suggest and I believe this that God would take you back to a child before he would bring you into a man or a woman he would want to come back to your childlike nature and let you know that he's paid for you to play he's paid for you to be enjoyed by him and out of that comes your work you know, when, the, when they said this in John, they said, hey, uh, what works would you have us to do? And the Lord says, uh, I tell you what, uh, he says, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. But then he tells them something. He said, believe on the one whom he has sent. He's saying, believe on me. That's the work I have for you to do. I want a relationship with you. I want a very intimate relationship with you. And out of that comes your work. So God doesn't deny work what he I mean, he doesn't want toil. 
He doesn't want anxiety. He doesn't want anxiousness. He wants a calm confidence. He wants and even has allowed this in many of our lives for things. He's allowed these things in our life that are stretching us, that feel like they're pressures, so that it would turn our eyes towards him. So we may be reflecting on another person and we don't realize that we're trying to get the father out of them. We may be looking for God to come and, you know, financially fix everything at one moment. Or we may be trying to deal with a health-related issue because generally I've found it's related to health, finances, and relationships. Sometimes it's just all around us. And the word's like, could you just be at peace right now and know my eyes see you and I delight in you? How could you delight in me if you're not doing something for me? I'm wanting to bring you back to childlikeness. I, I want you to be, know that you're enjoyed. I want you to know that I love you so deeply. You're my son and daughter. And so when we're, we're reflecting on that, and if we're running into relationship issues or financial pressures or physical needs, that the Lord wants us to just center ourselves and look at him. It sounds really simple, but really when you're in the middle of things, We've running around trying to fix it, and God's saying, stop. Well, I can't stop because if I don't do all this stuff or whatever, but if my soul's not at rest in him, something's off. So I can rest into work, but I'm not made to work to get a nap or worried to work to get into rest. I got to sit down, and the Lord said to my Lord, sit until your enemies become your footstool. So the Lord would be after us going to let him come in and come into those deep places and allow the, uh, the childlike simplicity to come back into us and receive this idea that I've paid for you to play. You know, I'm your daddy. I'm, your, I'm the father. And I've got it covered. And then what happens and what we're dealing with this morning about sealing is... Out of that new identity, the identity of a childlike nature comes our man or womanhood. Set me. So God deals with identity before he ever deals with destiny. He deals with the priestly function of your heart and then the kingly function. And so when the Lord is saying a man child has been born, what do you have? You have someone that is childlike, is completely dependent their only awareness is the Father. And at the exact same moment, they only see what the Father's doing, and they relate to the Father, and that's all they do. And then they take the courage to take the leap. That's the manhood, the womanhood, to take the leap into whatever he's doing. And that's where you're set. You're set into a body. You're set into a family. You're set into you know, the living stone. You're set into a government. You're set wherever he sets you. And there, right there, is seated in heavenly places with Christ. And so now it's the courage to act or to move based off what you see your father doing. So God's relationship with us is like that all the time, all day long, nonstop. And it's, it's, it's glorious uh, to live like that, actually. It, it can be a little bit tense only when you look at it. 
When you look at the problem, when you look at the situation, you're like, <gasps> you know, but you just moved back out of your childlike nature. You moved back into being supposedly an adult. <laughs> Go back to being a child. You know, our children aren't expecting to figure out how they're going to be covered for their food and all that. They don't know, right? We've heard this. And so you can't enter the kingdom of heaven except you come as what? Child. So don't resist dependency. I, I didn't realize this. I was even using biblical principles to try to defend against dependency. Right? We can find all kinds of biblical presuppositions so you can stay... Um, you don't have to be dependent. You can still be independent. You can still be isolated on biblical principles. But you can't, you can't with the person of God. You can't do that. And uh, So even faith, even the word of faith movement, even faith movements are not as great as love. You know, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? So even this is beyond faith. So even if we had faith to move a mountain, or if we had all knowledge, or if we set ourselves aflame to be, to be martyred for Christ, even if we had the tongues of men and of angels, if we had the greatest platforms, if, we, if someone could ask you any question and you were Google.com yourself, <laughs> and they could do that, and you would know every answer to everything. And you had not love, it's what? It's futile, it's nothing. Why? Because the, the very best of something comes from nothing. So you want to go to nothing. I, I remember for so many years in our family, the word's like, run it to zero. He's talking about my accounts. I'm like, no, no, I mean, no, no. Run it to zero. And it's still, it's not always the easiest thing to go through, I'll admit. Run her to zero. Run it to nothing and let me be God. Let me show you that I can show up. And I, sometimes my faith fails me or my love. And I'm like, do you really see it? We're in the middle of it. You know, are you going to come through? Stop looking at it. Quit looking at it. Look at me. You know, stop it. Stop it. Look at me. What am I doing right here? I don't know. Trust me. And move uh to act. Yesterday morning, I've been listening because Janie made this, uh, Janie McManus made this reference to me about listening to the, uh, the Prince and the Pauper by uh, Mark Twain. Has anybody ever read that? You have? Anybody else? You read it? You read it, Henry? Um, you <laughs> Yeah, I've lived it. Um, it, uh, it's a really, it's a really incredible uh, book. I finished it yesterday morning listening to uh, the audio book. And, uh, and so I wanted to give a, di a little bit different spin on Manchild. And not to, well, this may spoil, uh, just spoiler alert, I may spoil the book for you. But I, I think it's okay. Uh, people have had plenty of time to read it. <laughs> <laughs> there was this man in the book his name's Miles Hendon and he what what kind of just to kind of set the book up what happens in the book is there's this boy his name's Tom Canty and Tom Canty is is just like a vagabond he has no 
like uh, his daddy, John Canty, just beats him, you know, unmercifully. He's, he, he lives in the worst squalor part of, of town right outside, in, I think, the outskirts of London. And, um, you know, it just shows his squalor, and he's the pauper. And in short, what happens to him is he finds himself walking down this, like, long path outside of, I don't know if it's the suburbs or the rural area, and he finds himself up at the, uh, at the house of the king. And so uh, he's at the gate, and I guess all these people are around there or something, and one of the guards, like, grabs his hand and hurts him really bad on his hand. And the prince, who is the prince of Wales, who is the next line and next in line to the throne, sees what happens to Canty, and he tells him, "Stop, man!" And it's it's really interesting to to listen to because it's all in old English, kind of, and it's really, really you know you just haven't heard anybody talk like that, you know, in a long time. Well, I've never heard anybody really. I mean, maybe Pete Lineker a little bit, but. Watch thou thee where thou goest, young man. You know, they're using old King James English and stuff. It's really funny. But he's just like, stop. And so the, the prince has like this, um, the prince of Wales has this compassion towards Tom Canty. And so he brings him in. And they basically ends up bringing him into his palace. And, and uh, Tom Canty's sort of like, oh, man, what are you doing? You know, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody of the nobody of the nobody. And he brings him into his bedroom. And they realize when they're standing in the mirror that they both look alike, identically alike. And so they said, why don't we change clothes? And so the, the prince puts on the pauper's clothes and the pauper puts on the prince's clothes. And, and they're looking at themselves and, with this uncanny resemblance. And, um, and then somebody basically comes to the door. And you can imagine what happens. You get the pauper out. Well, you know, the pauper is actually going, is next in line to be the, uh, the king of England. And they cast him out of the house. And Tom Canty's in there in the royal clothes. And now he has to act the part of, of the Prince of Wales. And he has no idea, no idea how to act the part. And so they, they think that he's mad, basically. Or he had, they call it, this is interesting, they call it a malady. But the prince, when he's out telling all the townspeople, I'm the king, I'm the prince of Wales, they laugh him to scorn and they say he's mad. He's mad, you know, and everybody's kind of grieving over the guy, both guys because they're just like, what do we do? Because they look exactly the same and there's no way to really tell. And they think that they, one of them's went insane and the other one has a malady because, you know, you can't let everybody know that. The Prince of Wales is a little off his rocker now, you know, because he's next in line to be king. And what kind of family thing is that? You know, he's going to be the authority of the whole land, and we got to kind of cover this up. Something's wrong with him. And so the story basically progresses, and it's an amazing story of what they both have to learn. You know, one's got to learn how to govern and rule who has no idea what he's doing, and the other one has to learn. He ends up leading, basically, the rabble-rousers, and, they, and he tells them, bow to your prince. He's telling all these... <laughs> he's giving all these uh, knuckleheads in the commands, and they just think he's... He's like, you know, I'm the prince of Wales, 
what dare thee talk to me like that? And, you know, he's in the pauper's clothes. <laughs> you can imagine. They're, they're like, ah, you know, what is wrong with that guy? You know, I mean, and, um, and so it ends up, you know, a long story. Uh, it's like 34 chapters. Uh, and it's, it takes about eight and a half hours, I think, for on 1.1x or 1.2x. Do you know what I mean? Like the speed, because <laughs> I like speed it up a little bit. But hearing old English really fast is like, you know, it's like, <laughs> what the, the and thousand? You were like, huh? Oh, you know, so you're trying to translate really fast, but it ends up that uh, the king dies, uh, the daddy of the prince, and so they're going to have to cor- they're going to coronate the pauper. <laughs> And uh, long story short, he ends up at the coronation. And uh, at the coronation, uh, you know, I think it's at Westminster Abbey, but, you know, it's in the big, you know, you can imagine the nations watching. Well, they didn't have TV like Elizabeth II, but, you know, they have, this is a big deal. The whole nation is going to observe the coronation of the king. And the guy that's about to be crowned is Tom Canty. And so, somehow, the real Prince of Wales, who's, he's going to be King Edward, he finds his way into Westminster Hall and says, Stop ye, or something like this. I am the rightful heir to the throne. You know, you can imagine, like, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding where somebody actually contested. <laughs> you know, like, does anybody have anything to say about this marriage? Uh, actually, I do. Dad, Dad has a story about this, and it's hilarious. It's not hilarious because it was threatening, and you know, I mean, you know, you have no right to marry. You know, you can imagine like how this would be on a national level. This guy says he's the king, the the rightful heir, and he's dressed in this clothes, and the other guy's got crowns and jewels, and he's in regal power, ready to be crowned, thinking, what in the world is going on? I am not the king, right? And so uh, the Lord Protector, who's protecting the right to the crown, is like, stop ye! Get him and catch him or whatever and throw him out. And then so the Tom Canty, who's on the throne, says, stop now! He is the rightful king. You know, it's like... (laughs) And they're like, who do we listen to? I mean, you know... That guy's the rightful king. He's in a pauper, and that guy's on the cr- and he, throne. He's going to be the king. And okay, we have to listen to it because if he's the king, and he's saying no, that's the king, you know. And so I'm I'm listening to this, and uh, and I'm like, this is just so uh, interesting. So the Lord Protector says, I tell you what, what we're going to do is we'll run. If this guy's the rightful king, we'll run him through a series of questions that only he would know. And so he asked him these litany of private family questions that only he would know. And he answers them all without a hitch, like to perfection, because he knows them all. And then the Lord Protector says, that still won't do. And I'm, I'm like, I'm on, you know, I got my phone up to my ear because Kara's sleeping and, you know, I don't want to wake her up. And I've got, you know, on one thing and I'm like, <gasps> you know, I'm like, got that thing stuck in my ear. Oh, my Lord. It means that what he knows, even if he knew all the intimate details, it's not going to let him get in. He's, 
he still, by the word protector, no matter how much intimate detail he knows, you know, listen to me. It's not enough. And I'm like, what can it be? I mean, this is like a travesty. This guy's the rightful heir, and this guy's not. And it all boils down to all this information that he knows, and yet it's not enough. It's not enough to actually put him back in the position of the throne. And so I'm like, listen, I'm like, what? how are they going to figure out that he's the right guy? He looks exactly the same. You know, the, the one guy that's on the throne saying, I'm not him. He really is him. Well, that's not enough either for the Lord Protector. The Lord Protector will not take, he will not take the guy on the throne saying it. He will not take all of his information that is secret only to the family saying it. There has to be something else because his daddy is dead and his daddy wouldn't know any better either because he, he, he thinks that his son has a malady. Even his own daddy's eyes can't tell it. The, the secret information can't tell it. Even the guy sitting on the throne's authority is not enough. And listen to this. I mean, I, I think Twain, and I'm not saying I back up everything Twain does because he did some things he shouldn't have done in writing and stuff. Please don't, you know, you know, he was a bit of a racist and stuff, and, and so I, I don't buy into any of that. Is that right, Elizabeth? I'm not right? He wasn't, he wasn't oh, he wasn't? Well, one of, one of the kids said that some of his material was racy or something, or it, it was off a little bit. But, but anyways, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that. I just want to make that clear, so... But anyways, I, so I'm sitting there. I was like, "What? What is it going to? What is it going to take?" And um, the Lord Protector says something. Y'all are gonna love this. No mark on the body either. Can't be a mark on the body. He says. Um, he says, "I know what we've been missing something since your daddy died." We can't find the great seal. And the real king says, or the real future king, the prince of Wales says, Marky, man, or something like that. I know exactly where it's at. Go to my chambers. And in the left-hand corner, in the bottom, there's a secret access door that only one other man knows about. And in that access door, open it up in this location and look down into the left and you'll see the great seal. I placed it there. Go! And, and the little, uh, the right prince of Wales says, Go ye, Lord John, and dispatch yourself. And then John's like, uh, Am I supposed to listen to him? But he, you know, because uh, he just gave me a command. <laughs> it's like he's in charge. And then uh, other, I think Tom Canty's like, Go, do as he says. So he goes, and you know, you're thinking, This is the moment. Lord John comes back and he says, It is not there. Imposter! He is not the rightful heir. Get him out of here. And then so Tom Canty's like, no, he really is. And so what ensues next, I think is just really incredible. And I think it's apropos for us. Because he says, Tom Canty says, don't you, don't you remember where the great seal is? And uh, what does it look like? Because Tom Canty doesn't know what the Great Seal looks like. And so what Canty does is he helps 
the Prince of Wales draw back in his memory where he placed this device before they were split apart, the prince and the pauper, and at the very beginning of the story. And at the, beginning, at the beginning of the story, what happens, right when he's about to be ejected out of the room, right before that, he takes the great seal and he places it in a knight's armor inside of it. And, but he can't remember it for anything, uh, the Prince of Wales. He can't remember because in a flash, in a moment, and everything, he forgot. He forgot the very thing that would reinstate him. Did you know that... Do you know that we were with the Father before time began? And something has been happening to us, and we've been waking up to who we are. We've been, like, going through this journey of life, and I don't know about you, but I used to have flashes of things when I was a kid. Like, they would flash into my understanding. It's a little bit troublesome when your life doesn't look like that flash that comes into it. And you're trying to see myself a different way than I'm actually looking right now. And I'm seeing something different and it doesn't seem to match up. Anybody else? And then we go about trying to like figuring out how to make that thing come to pass. And we all did, and, and, uh, because our sin was telling us to do it a certain way. And the Lord's been wanting to restore us back to childlikeness so he could begin to tell us actually who we are. And then we start to find out a little bit about who we are in our real name. We start to remember. And our memory starts to jog because we've been like, we've been clouded by sin. It had been clouded by iniquity. You know, uh, Stephen and I was talking one time uh, a couple weeks ago. He's like, what do you think Jesus was going through, you know, in his childhood? You know, because he's without sin, right? And we know by the time he's 12 years old, he knows who his father is. Because he tells his parents, you know, what, what are y'all talking about? You know, they're like, um, don't you know I'll be about my father's business? And, and they know, Joseph and Mary, they've been visited by an angel. But Jesus is going to have to wake up to who he is. You know, later on in the Gospels, you're going to say, these scriptures, when he comes online, he said, those, those references are about me. Could you imagine how everybody's looking at him? I bet they were, well, they tried to throw him over a cliff. <laughs> I'm like the king, you know. But, uh, but still, you know, I'm not, I had to tell you all that, but um, uh, that one who's anointed right there, that's me. That's me. Those words are spoken of me. No, no, man, you're just a carpenter from Nazareth. And, you know, Jesus is realizing who he is, and I believe as he progresses along in his, I believe, now 70 weeks, he's, he realizes he's going to have to go to the cross, and he's starting to tell his guys about it. I've got to die. You know, he's, he's finding out from the Father things I don't, I don't think he, he knew, actually. And we know this out of Philippians because he says, not counting it robbery to be equal to God, he made himself of no reputation and came in the form and likeness of men. God comes to Bethlehem as he comes into the manger as a pauper, but what is he? He's the king. He's going to the mansion. And he's also, John 14, going to what? Prepare a 
He's going to prepare a place for us that where he is, there we may be what? So from the manger to the mansion, from the pauper to the prince. And see, what happens is, what's happening to us is you and I are beginning to wake up in our childlikeness to who we actually are. And I, don't, I think this is hard for people because they don't they say, well, I've been going through a whole season of let me. And now the Lord's saying, set me. Say set me. Set me into my place. That sounds like a bodacious thing to say. I'm in Westminster Abbey. Set me, right? You believe that? Do you, you know, do we believe that we are the, uh, the royal family? Do you understand? It takes a, a posture of heart. It takes, a, it takes something to really, really believe that when everything else around you is telling you a different story. It's trying to tell you, no, you're not, don't you? And you remember when you tried to be like that and then what happened to you? You can't say that. I, I think the Lord would say, uh, like Tom McManus been saying, I am Joseph. <laughs> like, say it. And uh, what is this? What is going on here? Listen, this is why it's so important that you hear this today. Like, today the Lord said today will be the day of the seal. Not like, you know, like one of those. But the seal. <laughs> it's not flopping around on the ground, right? <laughs> this is the day of the seal. Why? Because it wasn't until they discovered the great seal that he was instated. So they find, they go back, or John runs back, he finds the seal, he runs back, he says, truly he is. And they take the raiment, raiment off of the pauper and they put it on the prince and they set him to be crowned. The funny part of it, the hilarious part is, Tom Canty didn't know what that seal was. And they, so he, they asked him that he knew that it was there because he kept taking it out every evening. And they said, what were you doing with it? And Tom Canty wanted to eat nuts really bad. So he was using the great seal to crack nuts in his bedroom because he couldn't do it as a monarch sitting at the table. <laughs> He's like, I know what the great seal is good for. Cracking nuts. He didn't know that what he held in his hand was the very thing that would instate a royal into the fan, I mean, as the king of the entire nation. And I, and I, that's, you know, this excellent point, Austin, that you're making is maybe there, maybe right around us all the time. Maybe we just don't have eyes to see. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe we've thought that what was being put into our hands was to be used for the wrong reason. Maybe we saw the utility of it. Maybe we saw it in a way that it wasn't actually what the way God saw it. Maybe he had put something into our hands that really 
was for the mark of royalty, but we're going around cracking nuts. I've come to find this out about the Lord. I, I tell you of a truth. There are things that are happening around us where heaven is speaking right now. And if we just are running roughshod, just doing our thing, we're going to miss what heaven is saying now. Heaven has a message for us. And it is once you step through, now I call it the fifth dimension, but once you step into the dimension of love, you recognize a whole other reality that is all around you right now. What does Jesus say? Repent. Believe the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is what? Right. The kingdom of heaven is right now. The kingdom of God is within you. It's not this far out thing. I, for most of my life, saw heaven as some ethereal reality that was so distant from me, I had no idea that it was communicating with me right now. I mean, missing it all around. He's been having me go back and run a, a history on my own life, even from childhood. And he says, do you see where heaven was right there? And I said, oh, man, I had no idea. He said, did you see that name of that road you grew up on? Did you see that town? Did you check the etymology of the town name? Did you check the etymology of your wife, where she came from? Did you look even deeper into what was going on? All ways it was there. And yet we couldn't see him. But he's always been there. And he's there right now, here. And what I'm finding is, while obedience is better than sacrifice, if you were to take the O and the Y and you were to move them off of the sides of obey, what would you have? B. Be in me. I'm in you. And recognize heaven now. Um, Stephen and I was talking. I said, how, you know, I'm thinking, how can I explain this? And uh, I was sharing this with the prayer meeting Friday. The only way I know how is to think of uh, like a straw. And when we think about the dimensional space between us and heaven, think of it like a straw in your mind. And you were to take that straw and then you were to look through it. Now think of looking at putting a straw up to your eye and looking through the straw to the other side. And let's close your other eye. Now what do you see through the end of that straw? What do you see, Tommy? Okay, right, whatever's on the other end, and it's going to be a certain uh, diameter, right? So let's say, that, let's say that you were looking through the straw over there, Sierra, and you were looking through a straw, one eye's closed, you, and you saw that right there. Now, if we had to do this in fourth grade. I had to write a paper on what you see on a wall in just a small space and describe it. And it, had, it went to the state, and we got all our marks related to how well we could write in the North Carolina. And it's like, describe that like a spot. Now, when you're looking from this dimension, fourth dimension, X, Y, Z, T, including time, three-dimensional space, looking through in time, because we're in time right now. I don't know what time it is, but 
and you were to look through the fifth dimension and you were to see that spot right there, Sierra, what would you describe that to be? Gray. gray. Right? You might say, that's gray. Um, I see a, from your distance, you might see like a little like discoloration in it, these little spots. Now, you took your straw and you came over here and you saw this. What would you say that is? Can you see that? Green, okay. But did you know that sitting on that green is a C with a little dot? Why? Right. But what if I was, what if we were to take that straw and we were to shrink the straw down until the straw ends became one? And so the two, the two um, O's, so the, this is what I understand as order of Melchizedek or a veil. And we were to put those two O's together and they were right on top of each other. What would happen to them if they were literally right on top of each other? It would widen your perspective. So your perspective now, now what do you see when you see this? What would, right, what colors are, is it? All right, it's white and green. It's actually like a pinkish cream. And it says in the house of Tom Bombadil, I-L-E-Y. It has like a little flower here. And then it says what publishing house it is. And this says C.R. Wiley. Well, now you can see that there's a book there. But you have to even get up closer to be able to see what it says. Because at that distance, you can't see. Now, what I understand when Paul said in Ephesians 3.18, he said that you may comprehend what is the length the width, the height, and the depth of the what? The love of God. That's the fourth dimension. You can't, so he's saying, I want you to comprehend love in four dimensions. Why? I was called up to the throne, 2 Corinthians you know, chapter 12, verse 7. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. I was called up to the third heavens. Paul had transitioned out of the fourth dimension through what I believe is the fifth dimension, which is what I just described to you. Now, you might say, well, how do you know this, Carol? Well, I don't, but I read, I read physicists. And there was a physicist by the name of Oscar Klein. And he found the fifth dimension. And it's like 10 to the negative 32nd power floating around in space. And it says it's like a tube that has two ends on it. It's all, heaven is all around, but it's outside of the fifth dimension. But if we could remember this, remember that in Hebrews it says, faith is the title deed hoped for, the objective proof of an unseen reality. What is the objective proof? There are two witnesses. You know what those two witnesses are? They're the two holes. When you bring them together, you get a title deed hope for because you see what heaven is saying. Now, Brad has called this the umbilical cord that's twisted. Well, the umbilical cord now opens up and you have this, you can see through. And then, now you begin to move through that into the sixth dimension. And in the sixth dimension is where heaven becomes more open to your ocular ability, your 
your ability to see. And now you begin to behold heaven. What the Lord wanted with us is that we would live from heaven. Now, let me just say this. God's creator. He's also uncreated. So there's actually 12 dimensions, and he's outside of the 12 dimensions he created. So think of God like this. God is speaking by light down through those dimensions, and that light is picking up it, uh, to us and so that we can relate to heaven. So now heaven becomes your reality. So heaven in the sixth dimension, heaven in this dimension becomes a reality to you. And you begin to live from that reality, not the reality that's in uh, four-dimensional space. And you're letting that reality color and uh, give you the information of how to live in this reality. In this reality, four-dimension reality, X, Y, Z, T. Three dimensions, we look at each other, three dimensions and time, which is a fourth dimension. That was proven by Einstein. And uh, I believe the theory of relativity, There's a, he worked on time and some other guys did. And so we can see through to heaven, the kingdom of heaven. So what is Jesus doing? He's literally seeing what he sees his father doing from that dimension. He's pulling it, kingdom of heaven is at hand, into here now. Because he sees rightly, he can go and rub dirt in a man's eyes, and he's healed. He can take a kid's lunch and feed everybody. Why? Because he saw what heaven sees. He, he, was, he was literally interacting with his father. And here's the thing. So can we. And what, what happens like with this book or, is it comes up to us and we're like, oh, oh. Wow, there's writing there. It's not just green and pinkish cream. Oh, man, there's detail here. Oh, my goodness. Tom McManus is on the front of the book. <laughs> Wait a minute. We're living in the house of Tom Bombadil. For real. And we begin to behold heaven. And then in this way, what are we saying? This is the point of the seal. Set me. I'm set and seated in heavenly places with Christ. Set me. We've been saying, let me. And the word's like, let me. Yeah, let me perceive heaven. Let me perceive what heaven is saying. And let me bring heaven to earth. He tells his disciples to pray that prayer. That whatever's in heaven, let it be on the earth, right? Our Father, which art in heaven hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is. I want to know what heaven is saying. Um, I don't know, y'all might have questions about this, um, but I can, I can tell you of a truth. If you let love work in your heart in four dimensions, it opens your eyes up, and if you'll just say to the Lord, if you'll just say to him, can you reveal what's going on here? There are multi-layers happening in your life. We had a prayer meeting Friday. It was at the house. It was amazing. It was beautiful. The Lord just sweeps in and moves. He wakes me up the next morning. I thought I have an understanding of that prayer meeting. No, I didn't. He wakes me up and tells me all these things that were happening right there in our midst. And it all had to do with this seal. 
and I had no idea. He tells me it has to do with Manasseh. And he said, uh, you know, wear your blue and white stripe because it uh, has to do with the great seal of the United States of America. And I said, I don't know what you mean. I said, well, I'll wear my blue and white striped shirt. And Manasseh did too. And you know, there's an understanding from heaven because we're perceiving it and it's more real. Uh, Jesus wanted this opened us and his blood purchased this way for us. His blood made a way. And you know what it's called? Gen uh, Hebrews 6. He said he was the forerunner, a pioneer that went on in behind the veil in the order of what? Right. Let and set. Let me, Lord, and set me, Lord. So Tom Canty gets off the throne, and the rightful heir gets on the throne. And you know what the rightful heir does? He blesses Tom Canty. He blesses, he blesses, he learned his lessons out there in the field, and in the way, the, he saw a lot of things. He saw how laws were being conducted in his land, and they were not right. He had to learn some things about humility, but he also had to learn some things about people. There's things he didn't understand. He was making judgments and would have made judgments that would not have been the best for his people. So he had to go through some tough places to learn the way a human being is so that he could adjudicate, make good decisions. He had to be a pauper in a way to really be a prince. And maybe you and I, maybe, just maybe, what God is allowing to happen in our life right now is love. Love so that we can make right judgment. Love that's not critical. Love that's not complacent. Love that looks like him. Love that sees through to another person. But more than this, now love that sees the Lord, that sees what he's doing. Because we can't make judgment out of this world's ways. How many of us have made decisions based in two-dimensional space or even one-dimensional space? As an individual, two-dimensional, okay, out of our marriage contract, three-dimensional, out of blue, red, and purple, fourth-dimensional, out of four components of love. But if we could process into what heaven is saying, we could actually make decisions and adjudicate things in our life that comes from heaven because God doesn't necessarily see the way we thought he saw and we have been hurt and been hurt and we have hurt other people based out of one-dimensional, two-dimensional, three-dimensional thinking. I mean, our world today is rife with one-dimensional people. Rife with it. All their decisions center back on themselves in one dimension. They're broken and they can't even make a decision. Then marriage is being attacked two dimensions, male and female. And then the political system is just crazy and there's illegitimacy in the blue and the red. And the Lord wants to bring the legitimacy of blue and the red and make a royal. That's just three dimensions. Then he wants to bring love in four dimensions. You can't behold the fifth dimension in that concept of self, one dimension, even two dimension, three dimension. We need a four dimensional love. When we know that we've been lo we're loved and we're a lover, well, now we can cross over the veil. And then we begin to behold what heaven is saying. He says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we can rightly decide. I don't want to put dirt in another man's eyes because he's blind. That's what heaven says. His 
whose eyes are open. I didn't tell a man to rise up and walk and take his mat up after 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. Even greater works shall you do. But we need to perceive heaven to be able to do them. And we can't presume upon heaven. We need to know what heaven really is saying to us. And, and there's a training happening. You know, uh, the Lord told me years ago, back 12 years ago, I had Nigel Big Pond come in. He says, he looks at me and he calls me, you know, a name. And then someone else says the same thing. And it was a double proof. And he said, you know, this lady told me, he said, one day you're going to train the royal family. And I said, you know what? I accept that, you know. Well, let me, let me give you something to bless you. Lord, open our eyes unless we sleep the sleep of death. Psalms 13. Open my eyes. Job 42.5. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I want to behold you, Lord. I want to look up like, you know, Psalms 121 says, they look, look, look at me. What am I saying? I need a revelation that comes from the kingdom of heaven that is informing my life. And I've got, to, I've got to allow myself to be postured as a little child. Well, I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to fight it. I've been fighting it my whole life. I've been trying to be independent, tell everybody I know whose boss I am. You know, I'm going to run my own show. And the Lord would say, you know, to us, you know, let me, let, let me, let me, let, let me, okay, now set me. Let today be a, like a moment of being set. Maybe somebody's been in a position that wasn't rightfully theirs that actually is yours. What does that make you bad because you stand up, you know, and you say, you know, that's my place. You know, we've been taught that we can't do that, but not with the Lord. I realize that. David didn't go around telling everybody about himself like that. He said, let the Lord decide. But one day, you know, one day, one day, and it's coming on us right now, and it's got to start right now, because how do the kingdoms of this world and his Christ happen, and we shall reign if we don't begin to behold what heaven is saying to us now? I mean, do you know what knocks, what's going to knock Lucifer out of the second heavens into the first heaven? This reality of being set in the Lord. That's what knocks him out because you're like, hey, buddy, you're in my, you know, you took my seat. Get out of my seat, you imposter. There's an investiture happening. Get out of the seat, imposter. Imposter, there's an investiture. There's a ceiling. You see why he says now? Not just let me, Lord, but set me, Lord. Well, I've been afraid of that person. I've been afraid that I'll abuse power. I've done things I shouldn't do, right? Think about this. Can I be like, can I actually, can we as a royal family truly govern? I've been complacent or I've been critical. I don't want to be either one of those anymore. Be set by you, Lord. Now, I'm going to behold what you're saying from your perspective from heaven and that I will wait on I'll do nothing else okay and sovereignty rests in the individual at the point the individual rests in the sovereign so I rest in you Lord let heaven decide it's uneasy sometimes the Lord said to my Lord sit until I make your enemies a footstool and then he releases the scepter he says rule in the midst of your enemies your people shall volunteer in the day of your power and the beauty of holiness. You have the womb of the morning dawn. He 
you're a priest forever after order of Melchizedek. And he shall wound the heads over many countries. And there he shall lift up, after this wounding him, fill the places with dead bodies, and there he shall lift up his head. Where the rivers flow and the water is so serene, and his government will rise all over the earth. Let me whore, but now set me. Set yourself, set me as a seal on your heart. Set me as a cylinder seal, Lord. There's going to be a sealing that is spoke of in Revelation chapter 7. Tom was seeing it earlier. There has to be this sealing. It's going to happen. I don't know how or I don't know when. All I know is right now what I've been, he said to me. The sealing must happen. I am your keeper, says the Lord. I am your protector. Some of us, have, but we, we, we don't even know this. And I'm telling you, I know some of our situation, but this has happened so much to us that we've been in such a position of letting for so long, even bloodletting, that to move into a position of sitting, setting, is just, it's going to be new for some of you because you've thought, you know, I'm complacent. I've been critical. I, I, I can't trust myself. Well, good then, don't. Don't trust yourself. Trust the Lord in you. Don't place your confidence in your flesh. Place your confidence in Him. But when the Lord says and reveals Himself to you what He's doing, as a child, move in courage as a man to believe what He's saying to you and step out in it. I have nothing to go on. You have my word, says the Lord. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. I don't have anything to go on. You have my word. Would we ever think that God would give us anything more than that? The transaction happens after you move on his word. It always happens. He'll transact business from heaven to earth when you move out on what he has revealed to you. Now move out on it. That takes courage because it's going to feel awkward. It's very awkward. It takes courage to believe something like what you can't see. Something that can't, comes from heaven, but you will become more comfortable with heaven. You'll be comfortable with heaven and you'll breathe heaven's air. You'll be refreshed in what heaven says and what you see heaven saying. And you'll say, I, I, I see you, Lord. I behold you, Lord. Yeah, I repent in dust and ashes. And my eyes have seen the King. My eyes behold you, Lord. All the joy that fills my soul. I'm beholding Him. I behold you, Lord, now. Even in a manger. Yes, we're going to a mansion. Yeah, we are. 
but it's going to be contingent on this. Set me, Lord. Set me, Lord. Set me, Lord. Set me right now. Set me as a cylinder seal on your heart and on your hand. Set me as a signet, Lord. Set me, Lord. Set me, Lord. I'm seated in heavenly places in Christ. I know who I am in you. I can move out. Behold, behold, behold. They overcome him by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb. They didn't love their lives even to the death. The greatest authority is right there, right there in the setting. this way he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me and so the fellowship would not just be of his suffering Paul would say that I may know him also in the power of his resurrection there is always a resurrection. He sent forth his blood. And out of it came the vein and artery of blue and red to produce a royal. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may you have peace. Amen. Bless you today.
Bye. 